Welcome to Blood and Spirit, the podcast for Black families evolving. I'm your host, N.J. Malay Ali, and in season two of Blood and Spirit, we're going deeper into specific dynamics of Black family life. My guests will bring perspectives, experiences, and insights on issues of ritual and legacy, communication, marriage, and more. Today, we're continuing our discussion of ritual and legacy with oral historian and author, Julie Rainbow. Julie weaves her love and honor of African-American elders and ancestors into her daily professional and personal practice. Her mission is to amplify the voices of elders, and she does so through her books and oral history projects. Welcome to Blood and Spirit Podcast, Julie. Welcome. Thank you. You are welcome. (laughs) I'm great. I'm great. How are you feeling today? I'm doing great. Well, if you've heard any of Blood and Spirit podcast, you know that I always ask my guests this question at the top. And that is, what is your favorite non-alcoholic drink? Well, it's funny you should ask that because I was taking a yoga class um, last week and the yoga teacher gave a drink. And it is absolutely my favorite drink and I've been making it ever since. Okay. You take watermelon, lime juice, Mm. and mint and it is absolutely delicious i've already had three large cups today (laughs) (laughs) at this moment that is my favorite drink oh that's awesome that sounds delicious and Um, you put it in the blender with the seeds you don't have to de-seed the watermelon and it grinds oh Oh, my gosh it's so good it's It's got to be so refreshing it is very refreshing that is fantastic. So that's that's it for this week. What was your favorite drink the week before that? <laughs> um, I, probably I am a water person. Mm-hmm. I, you know, and what I've been doing this summer, I like water with seltzer. I mean, not water with seltzer. I mean, juice with seltzer. Uh huh. So, yes. Um, You know, some sort of juice, pineapple juice with seltzer, cranberry Mm -hmm. with seltzer. Yeah. But water is probably my all-time favorite. I'm getting a lot of that. And so that's that's very encouraging for the future of health among uh, African-Americans. Because a lot of folks are telling me water is it for me. So that's that's good stuff. Or, Or some other healthy drink, you know. So that's really encouraging. So let's talk about let's talk about you and your work and so forth for a minute here. And I want to start with Standing the Test of Time. Uh, yes. That's the title of your book, um, Standing the Test of Time, Love Stories of African-American Elders. And there's a workbook that goes with it too, right? There is, Creating Healthy Relationships, yes. Uh, so tell us about that project. Well, that project started when I was in graduate school, or at least the idea of that project came when I was in graduate school. And one of my professors um, was really describing African-American families as pathological. Mm. And I, you know, was suspect because I didn't think African-American families were any more pathological than any other families. But she went on to kind of describe them. And then when I challenged her, she asked me to prove it. Mm. And I could not find a book that really identified healthy relationships between 
um, in, in marriages or couples. There was some writings out there, but it was very minimal. So I decided to do a project and, and document the stories of African-American couples who had been married 30 years or more and just did it and found just these really wonderful, dedicated, devoted couples. Mm. And, you know, even though there were only 20 couples in the, in the book, um, I interviewed many more. And it really was not the decision. It was not just people staying together 30 years. There were really some characteristics. And the characteristics um, that I used for the workbook were those attributes that were gleaned from these stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, how they stayed together. And I, and it, and it, you know, people think, oh, well, it's this kind of magic formula. They went through some tough times mm-hmm. and the capacity to just stick with it and wait it out. Um, these couples had that and some of them separated and got back together. Um, they worked through addictions. They, mm. there were all sorts of um, issues, but their commitment, um, superseded whatever discomfort they were experiencing at the moment. Is that the uh, common denominator that you found, the commitment, the ultimate, you know, common denominator that actually held them together through all those difficulties? Um, that and, yes, the commitment, but some of them separated. Um, and that doesn't mean there's a lack of commitment because a couple separates, but they seem to have this capacity to not define themselves solely by this relationship. Ah. So they had a circle of people around them that affirmed them in ways that maybe we don't have as much now. Um, and so, you know, people were going to their, the elder in the community. I went down the street and talked with, um, Miss, Miss, Miss Regina and Miss Regina told me, girl, you know, you just need to wait that out. Don't, don't let that man do that to you. So you would hear these stories where they would go to other people to get the support they needed. And typically that, that person they would go to was someone older than themselves rather than now we go to our girlfriends and right, our girlfriends right. don't have any more experience than we do so it's like you know they don't have the, the same perspective so yeah we're going to return to that that conversation about um about the elders and i think that that's that's really something that's going to um emerge out of your story what i know about your personal story and uh, how you developed your interest and skills in oral history. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, it, I actually worked on a project while I was in graduate school. Um, my field placement was with um, a research firm, Public Private Ventures, and I happened to have worked on the ethnography study for Big Brothers, Big Sisters, and they were really looking at what were the characteristics between big brothers and sisters and their and their mentees to find out and so working day in and day out on that study i learned the skill set and i extrapolated those same skills and used it for standing the test of time okay and your um was was standing the test of time your first oral history project well 
you know, I was, I've been doing oral histories, I think from the time I was eight years old, but I didn't know it was oral history uh-huh. because I would go to the elders in the community where I lived and just, they were so just fascinating to me. And I would go listen to their stories and write them down, not mm-hmm. word for word, but if I heard something, I would write it down. Um, and that to me is, I was doing oral history at that time, but didn't know it. What made you do that? Well, because when I listened to them, there were things in my spirit that resonated with what they said, and I didn't want to forget it. Uh, so I, it's just like when you hear truth, for me, you know, much of my experiences lived through my body. Mm-hmm. So I heard it with my, my body and soul and I just didn't want to forget what they said. So That's... I would start writing it down. Wow. Do you still have those notes? I wish, but I don't, <laughs> I, I don't, but some of the things that they said still are in my consciousness. And one of the things I didn't say um, is that you're, you live in Philadelphia now. And, um, but you, you grew up in North Carolina, that's your home. And you've described to me what a wonderfully nurturing community you lived in. Talk about that a little bit. Well, I, I, I believe that my um, experience, my young childhood experience really shaped my identity. I lived in a all black segregated community where people from all income levels, from janitors to doctors lived in the community. And I did not go to a segregated school until I was 12. So- You mean an integrated school? I did say segregated, didn't I? I meant integrated school Mm -hmm. until I was 12. So all of, you know, my teachers really provided information beyond what the textbook would provide about black history. So I was living black history, you know, throughout the school year. So to go to um, this integrated school and all of a sudden we have a month and we're going to really focus on this month. That was really beyond me because I lived, breathed this kind of history and teachers shared from their own experiences. So, you know, and there were, and in that community, um, the elders didn't go to, um, they didn't go to assisted living or they stayed in the community. So I had all of this, this, all these older people around me, and I just thought that was natural. And one of them, I am still in love with her, and she's no longer living, but she, she was my best friend mm. from, until I was 10 years old. And when I say best friend, I could tell her anything without judgment. Wow. And so my day was unpacked. When something happened at school, somebody was picking at me. I was a little chubby girl and uncoordinated and it was the last one picked for the kickball team and bait, you know, so yes. I mean, all those things. I had a place to go. That's yeah. fantastic. That's fantastic. So fast forward to 2015 and you invited me to work with you on an exhibition project that you initiated called Journey to Sanctuary. And I happily agreed. And um, I was working, I was uh, doing the editing of the uh, grant proposal and it has since been funded and you are now working on that. So uh, tell our listeners what Journey to Sanctuary is all about. Well, 
Journey to Sanctuary is part of my family story. Um, wherever I go, um, I moved to, I returned to Philadelphia in 2013. And when I go, I, I, I connect with elders in the community. And I do want to make a distinction about what I, an elder is a person who's been able to turn their life experiences into wisdom. But I, I connect to the aging community. And so um, this project really speaks to African-Americans who came to Philadelphia during the second wave of the Great Migration from 1940 to 1970. Mm -hmm. And many of their stories have not been told in the Philadelphia, in the city of Philadelphia. Oftentimes people talk about experiences um, providing the context, but they don't really talk to the people who really live through the experience. Yes. And I wanted to highlight elders who had these stories still in them who had really not been acknowledged. And these um, living historians have lots to say about their experiences and how do we begin to acknowledge and revere and acknowledge them absolutely um, um yeah so this it, project is about that experience of what it took to leave the south and come to philadelphia what have you what are some of the highlights so far well there are many highlights um i think one of them that brings me a lot of satisfaction is the experience of sitting down with an elder and the joy that they exude by just being acknowledged. Mm. Mm. By just being acknowledged and somebody wants to hear me, my story matters. You know, so, that, that kind of, that brings me right to this, this other question. I wanted to know, how is it, can you like, list a few of the ways that elders' voices have been pushed aside in contemporary society? Well, I think that um, the mainstream generally do not value people as they age. And so as particular, and because we have had such a difficult time sharing our narrative as African-Americans, those generations before us have had any, an even more difficult time. My mother, who, who recently passed at 101, mm. didn't believe that her, nobody wanted to hear what she had to say. Wow. And because it wasn't acknowledged. And so I think what I encourage people to do, because I do see this trend happening where now the mainstream wants to include us. So you find, you know, um, Black Lives Matter, but there was a foundation created prior to that. And so we can easily forget that we are on the, you know, we've heard the saying, we are on the shoulders of those that came before us, but how do we acknowledge them? They're still living, they're still here. How do we engage them? And I think, um, you know, 
if we just seek them out, but I think that that's not, you know, that's not what's um, rewarded. That's not what matters um, in the general mainstream, but it, it is, it's, it's just part of my own upbringing that I don't care how they act. I'm going to find a way to connect to them, you know, mm -hmm. and, and oftentimes, you know, you know, we talk about these generational gaps, but if you come with an open heart, there's no gap. Mm -hmm. You know, like my mama said, I'm all the ages I've ever been. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so if she's all the ages she's ever been, she can relate to a three-year-old, 15-year-old, 25-year-old, but we have to take the time to sit with them because they don't trust that we really care enough to sit, you know, it, it's not going to be a five minute conversation. Right. It really isn't. So, right. so I don't know if I answered your question. Now, I can go off on tangents as you can see. <laughs> well, you've touched on a lot in that and you touched on the impact of silencing to some degree, to a large degree, elders throughout the society, what impact do you think that has in individual families, this, this silencing or this quieting of elders? Um, I think, well, for, I just, I'll speak from my own experience, is that um, there was some trauma that my mother experienced. And, you know, at, during the time she came about, she didn't have a counselor or a therapist to go to. So there was nowhere to unpack or process those experiences. So they became repressed. But, you know, we know that even though we try to forget about uncomfortable or painful experiences, they seep out in sometimes psychotic or neurosis or in other ways. But they don't, typically they come out in ways that we may not even know. And so um, the last four years of her life, four to six years, she began to talk. And those experiences, it, it, it provided answers to some of the continued trauma that I, that I see in my own family around you know, mental health issues. Mm -hmm. So, it allows by talking to the elders, if we could sit with them long enough and now, and it doesn't mean that all of them are going to be at a place where they are able to share some of those hurtful and painful situations. But I think we, we owe them to at least try uh, to yes. at least try yeah. to engage them. Yeah. And so how talk about how where ritual and legacy and oral histories come together. Talk about that intersection and how we can get the best benefit out of, out of wrapping all those things up together, ritual, legacy, and oral history. How can we create a, the, you know, the kind of ritual that would make it easy to go to those elders and to make sure that they're acknowledged and, and listened to and actually listen to them? Well, I think you're asking a question that I may not be qualified to answer. I can talk a little bit about my experience, but I think that, you know, developing or creating that ritual, that legacy, and that intersection of that really is a personal 
design that fits who you are. And I think um, from my own experience, um, I was just taught that every human being has value and you don't mistreat people. And so from, but I was the only one in my, in my neighborhood listening to the elders. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, we played kickball, rolling back. And I, I don't, I, I think f- that I was just assigned that duty. Um, and it wasn't, it's not a duty that um, experience um, because certainly my siblings did, but they didn't do it. And I think that part of this ritual that you speak of was a means for me to kind of save who I am. Mm -hmm. What I experienced from the elders, they took on, let's say, maybe a religious, you know, a religious way of being, you know, they, you know, a Christian way of being, and they followed that dutifully. But if you peel back that layer, yes, they give you some jewels they that do. have nothing to do with the religion. Yes, yes. And so, you know, when I hear these things, and I internalize that things because, and so I, my ritual was going to see Mother Thorne every day after school to unpack my day, to listen, to have someone listen to me non-judgmentally and just be a friend mm-hmm. that was my ritual that was my um my kind of saving and so i needed that and at the same time i learned about her you know how her son who had an addic- addiction he was an alcoholic and how what his what his life was so i think the legacy is acknowledging both good and bad who we are Mm -hmm. and the ritual are tools to help us sustain our sanity in the midst of living in a foreign land absolutely absolutely so with you know you are also a social worker and a family counselor yes have you seen um or what have you seen as potential barriers to starting and maintaining a family oral history practice i think some of the barriers would be we are in there are barriers and then there's some tools that we have nowadays that make it so much more easier. Like you can record a person on your phone. And whereas when I started this, I was using a tape recorder. Yes. I had cassette tapes. I was writing. So the mechanical barriers have diminished while we don't find necessarily the time and the barriers are and this is really this you know i think the barriers are 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 projected onto us by society because Mm -hmm. if we begin to to connect ourselves to the history the legacy the honor of who we are 
rather than relying on external factors to tell us who we are. Yeah. That's a powerful thing. So the barriers are not having, you know, the illusion of time. The illusion of time. The illusion of time. Mm. The illusion of time. Because we do have the time, but we, we don't take the time. I think some of the barriers is that um, the pain, you know, the being able to sit with and bear witness to another story that you may not want to hear. Whereas these things were, were really commonplace before the stories, you know, the, 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 what the barrier is these social media. Mm. We find social media much more entertaining than, you know, the stories that are, that are part of our family's history. That's an interesting thing to, to see that it's, it's so necessary for uh, communication to have an entertainment component nowadays. I can kind of understand the pressure of, of young people to be liked. People have always wanted to be liked, but to be, but to have to, you know, have a heart by, by something that you say when you are expressing your heart is... Come on now. Damaging. Come on now. Come on now. It is, is damaging. damaging. You know, for people to have to have somebody to put your heart out there in a public space and then to not have it acknowledged is very much of a distraction because at least when you're talking to one person, it's about expressing yourself to that person and you will be acknowledged in some way, even if it's in silence, because they will have heard you and you know that they will have heard you and you will, you will experience from their body language what, what they felt as a result. Whereas when you put something on an electronic medium and you get silence back, you don't know what that means. Right. 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 You really don't. You really don't know what that means. And the only thing that you know is the few icons that are available. You can, you can love it. You can like it. You can be mad at it. You can be sad at it. Okay. There's only a few options. Right. Where, and so I, I hear what you're saying in terms of, you know, social media being a barrier to communication and to, and to time. And let me correct that because social media is just a tool. Right. So it's how people choose to internalize the messages they're giving given from social media that causes the damage. The messages are such that they are starting to define who they are in their identity. So let's not, I don't want to say social media because social media is a tool that can be used to connect people in ways that we're not being connected across cultures. So, um, but it's how people are using it to define who they are. Well, you're absolutely right, because I, I have spoken with um, a number of families who, who do use it, use the medium to, to stay connected. Um, right. They have, their, they have their private rooms where they talk and they share their photos and keep everybody up to date uh, on the family happening. So it's, uh, it's a double-edged sword, as most swords are. And, and a tool that we can use uh, to our benefit and to our detriment. So 
in in your gathering, in addition to gathering oral histories, how do you stay connected with elders? Do you still have some some people that you can go to and unpack your day? Always, always. You know, some and and I have a I have a pocket full. So mm-hmm. I know to go to this one for that. I know to go to this one for this. I know to go to this one for that. So yes, I do. I do have them to talk to. And I'm finding as I get older and I've been able to internalize their messages, I, um, I, I, they, they become my friends as opposed to my um, going to them for wisdom because I am moving into the elder status <laughs> <laughs> I'll be in that elder status. And so, yeah, it's, it's, and you mentioned, you talked about rituals. I, I begin my day with quiet mm-hmm. and um, meditation, I say is my medication because mm-hmm. it helps me tune in to my internal world rather than immediately getting engaged in the external world. Now, in that process of uh, quiet in the mornings, are you also connecting with ancestors? Yes. I have an altar where um, I have family members who have made the transition on my altar. And, you know, it's just, I, you know, just feel so full when I talk about my mom because she was probably the person I loved most in this world. And Mm -hmm. she's right there. Mm. And um, she's guiding me. She's inspiring me. She's encouraging me. And I get that daily dose of her love the first thing in the morning. Wow. Um, And now it's, it's unfiltered. She's right there. Mm. You know, and I can't explain it any other way. I know it sounds kind of, woo woo right but she's right there and that's you know that's an important thing we'll be talking later on in the season about grief as one of the issues that people everybody has to deal with um especially loss of people but also loss of other valuables in our lives you know experiences places uh senses of self you know identities that kind of thing but the people that we lose along the way really, really impact us greatly. So how are you able to move through grief with that ancestral connection alive? How does that work for you? Well, I think a lot of it is influenced by my own belief system that they still are with us, but just have changed form. Mm -hmm. So, I can call on who, them as, you know, in a, and know that they're hearing me, but they just happen to be in a different form. Yes. So um, I think there needs to be some, you know, maybe Maladoma. So May needs to talk about, you know, when he talks about ancestors, he's like, they just right there. They right, they right there. You just keep <laughs> You just can't see them like you are accustomed to seeing them, but they're right there. Mm-hmm. And so I'm feeling that my mother's right there. I believe that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So ancestors, yeah. 
How did you get your connection? Did you know that through a Native experience? Did you read about it first? Did you talk with somebody who said your ancestors were there? What was sort of like the, the initiation for you of your capacity to connect with ancestors, those who have passed on from this plane? Well, I think it has been a hit or miss experience because I didn't grow up with that in my cosmology. I didn't grow up with that experience. My, um, but there were some things that I learned, like my father, who is part Native American, his connection to being in nature. So I would spend a lot of time in the, in, the, in the woods, just sitting on rocks, listening to the trees and all of that. So, but I think when I went to college and the book, uh, William Chancellor, I think it is, Chancellor Williams. Chancellor or, Williams, uh, The Destruction of Black yeah. Civilization. Yeah, that was my first book. That, and I was like, wow. And so just wanting to know more, I think just being curious because some things that I was taught wasn't working for me mm -hmm. in, you know, the Christian faith. And so I had to find another way of experiencing that because this woman elder that I grew up with, Mother Thorne, um, when she passed away, there were things all around that I got signs that she's still like, she's wow. still here. Okay. So... And my mother would say, hush that fuss. You, you know she ain't here no more. Just stop. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, okay, well, she doesn't know. She don't see what I see or hear what I hear mm -hmm. or see things that were left that were... So I just kind of kept quiet. Mm -hmm. And so I had to... But I knew. Yeah. So how do you... And so what we do is, rather than um, with children, when they have these experiences... How do you engage them so that they can continue to believe maybe something that we're taught not to? So I think it's been a lifelong kind of peeling back the layers and being comfortable with who I am. And as I get older, you know, I just learned you can't tell everybody everything. And so, you know, you know, some people, you just can't tell them what, what your experiences are because they don't have the, they don't have the, the experience or the, the same sort of consciousness, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. My first experiences with, with ancestors was a terror, <laughs> as I have to say, as a child. And so uh, it's really uh, a total complete and total blessing for me uh, at this point in my life mm -hmm. to actually be able to invite mm -hmm. ancestors into my space. Whereas as a young person, I, I was terrified that I would uh, actually see them. And so, oh, wow. so it's, it's a, it's a complete 180 for me. And one of the, well, the book, actually, you mentioned Maladoma Patrice uh, Somme, who is from uh, West Africa part of the Dagara people. He, he travels around the world uh, helping people to, come, to become connected with their own capacities uh, right. in, in, in many different arenas. In the arenas of particularly how to uh, be connected with your inner world and connected with the ancestors and connected with being able to mm -hmm. travel between these different worlds. 
his book, uh, Healing Wisdom of Africa, mm. really described how to set up set up a an altar, which and I for me I call it my power center. Mm. Uh, because it's mm-hmm. a place where where I can experience that sense of of connection with power. You know, genuine, deep, universal, ancestral power. So yeah, that's that's been uh, it's been a real experience, and I and I definitely understand what you're saying about um, this is not a conversation that you can have with uh, mm-hmm. you know every person. Yet there are so many people who have the experience who don't feel free and able, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and having a forum to be able to talk about what they feel, what they know. And how to manage it, and well, how to how to live with it, and how to be peaceful with it, and be able to share it. Right. Well, well, it's interesting because when I had a conversation with Maladoma, and he talks about that some people are auditory; they hear voices. Some people have visions. Some people can see auras in people. And we, we, in the in our Western defined, he says, many of those people are really are categorized as having some sort of mental illness mm-hmm. because they begin to have these visions or hear these sounds or somebody. And so I'm not, I don't want to diminish that the mental health field is not important, but it's developed on a foundation, not of African tradition. Yeah. So if I hear a voice, and I do know people have heard, if I hear a voice, let me finish the sentence. If I hear a voice, oftentimes it's coming from a place of guidance and love. And mm-hmm. you know, whereas I do know that in some, in the mental health field, oftentimes people hear voices that tell them to do things that are negative. But he says that that is something that if you're brought up in an environment where that's just the norm, you are able to distinguish the, the, the forces who may be speaking to you and quieting those negative ones. Mm-hmm. So, but we don't have that. We don't have a way of reconciling those things mm-hmm. in culture. Yeah. So, so you're being able to, um, to, to go from your experience to have those experiences, even as a child. And most likely that, that the fact that you had sat with elders for so long at their need from, from a child, I'm sure instilled in you a great deal of wisdom that allowed you to make those connections. So when it, you know, as you grew older, you were able to put those things into practice and have them as a nurturing element in your life rather than anything else. Well, um, I will say in Jamalay that much of what I learned was rejected because it was really, it was hard to be in a world where what you learn was diminished critical there so i often sat on this this at this thing like feeling insecure about what i knew was true for me mm-hmm. but not having but being in a world that was t- it, so it was it was difficult mm-hmm. um i would say probably in the last 20 maybe 10 to 15 years i've been able to reconcile that th- those experiences were okay but so often they were not seen as it's like what's wrong with you where you get that nonsense from you know mm-hmm. I, that's the general tone mm-hmm. and so i just learned to keep quiet mm. and but now <laughs> i'm yes. in a different <laughs> yes yes 
Yes. I'm in a different place, right? So was that one of the one of the features that rejection of the wisdom that you had had been able to internalize from the elders? Was that one of the things that you would like to change about your experiences? Like I know that there are, you know, you grow up with things that you uh values that you want to hold on to from your family and and you tend to grow up also with values that you want to uh evolve. Is that one of the values that you would say uh, you would prefer to evolve from your um, childhood experiences? What value is that? I'm sorry, I didn't. Miss, I missed it. Uh, what would you like to? Let me just start over. Let me start from here. Did you grow up with an idea of things that you would like to change in your family? Oh my goodness, yes, and. One of those, one of the most important was the communication. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think part of, I gravitated to this elder mother Thorne because I could talk, you know, it was almost like in my family, it's like, you say something, it's like, you just, you know, if they didn't understand you or they didn't, you know, it was the lack of communication. So absolutely there were things in my family that I, I would, I would want to be differently. Um, but I was fortunate enough like to find other places to go um, within my community that made me feel okay, that I which felt is, okay. Which is kind of the ideal uh, and, the, and the description that um, Maladoma, we're, we're using him for reference quite a bit today, what is described in Dagara family culture, because in, in Dagara culture, as well as many other African cultures, the family is not a nuclear unit Yes, at all. Yes. And, right. and that many times the, the biological parents of a child really don't, play, don't have that much to do with the child's intellectual, spiritual, and emotional growth, that right. the whole community is participating in that Yes. And Maladoma's wife really described that. Oh gosh, I can't think of her name right now. Oh, oh gosh, I know. Um, mm, it's right on the tip of my tongue. Mm. Um, she described life there too, and described the freedom of being able to to go to so many different elders and choose who you needed in a particular moment from the time of being a child, from you know, from from childhood, being able to be to do that, to make those choices. And, and that being an understood and accepted norm. Right. And so it takes a lot of pressure off of the individual parent. And so when we're looking to understand uh, how to be a good parent in this society, we're really going against a very deep grain that's within us about being able to have a larger pool of people that we call mother and father and grandmother and auntie and auntie auntie and uncle so-and-so and 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 they weren't blood kin aunties oftentimes weren't blood kin right right so yeah i agree so what was one of the greatest challenges that you faced as a child growing up well you know it's interesting because i've always been goofy and i was chubby and hard to um, imagine And, um, you know, I was just thinking about this the other day when I was in high school, I learned that I had scoliosis and I was wearing a body cast. 
So the, the teasing was merciless. You know, it's like, so I was always kind of this odd person out. So I think it gave me the capacity. I had to go within to get to find out really what was really special about me. So I didn't rely on the outer world to define me because that they were cruel. You know, you can't play basketball. I mean, you can't, you know, it, <laughs> I can't remember. You know, you can't throw a dodgeball, all these kind of things. So I was pretty odd now, you know. So it's like, it was a blessing to, at the, at the time I didn't see it, but it caused me to have a really rich inner world Mm -hmm. And I had to seek out those people outside of the, 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 the quote, people my age to, to get some sort of affirmation. So, yeah, I was a little, I was goofy. I still am goofy. You know, like <laughs> when I think of that word diva, I'm like, who are they talking? You know, like, <laughs> I, I'm like, okay, I don't fit that job description. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I, and this. And I just enjoy, you know, because I, I am my own best company. That's fabulous. And you, and you're also very outgoing, which is, which is really great. Yeah. Really great. Yeah. So what are, with all of that uh, input, all of that experience, what are some of the greatest values that you seek to pass on to your son and your future grandchildren? Um, to be contemplative, I think that if, if, and everybody has value, everybody on the face of the earth has value. And if we could just start with those around us, acknowledging what value they bring to this lifetime. And, you know, some of those old sayings, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. We, 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 we grew up with that. But, you know, we're in a society now that is totally opposite that, you know, so sticking to some of those core beliefs. And my mother and, you know, you would think that we were alike, but we were really opposite. You know, she was really she dressed all the time, didn't step out of the house unless she looked good and dressed to the nines. And, and so we struggled with our relationship. But when we became like accepting of one another, she said, just, you know, just like she would tell me about my sister, just accept them. They just mm -hmm. need to be loved just like everybody else. Just love mm -hmm. them and accept them. Mm -hmm. And so I'm learning that lesson. And it's, it's just... It's like people are doing the best they know how to do. Mm. They really are doing the best they know how to do. Mm -hmm. So I am working not to be so critical mm -hmm. and really look at what value and just she, I can just remember her kissing me and say, just love baby, just love. <laughs> and that word is overused, but I, I'm a cry. <laughs> yeah. I know. I, I really know what it. Shit, I know what it means. Mm -hmm. It's not just a word anymore. Yeah. It's, um, it's much. It's not just a word anymore. An overused word. It's. I feel it. Mm -hmm. I feel what it means. And I can, if I could keep my heart open enough, to just see people beyond their reactions to the world. Mm -hmm. Um. 
I'm doing them a favor. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. So yeah, passing that, I'm certain that your son has that, has garnered that from your heart because because you lived that. What other legacy would you like to leave? Um, I would like for us not to be so harsh to one another. I mean, that's part of the love, but to, you know, not react to maybe the actions of others, to know that, to find his own true, his destiny, because, you know, I started engaging with elders young, but it, it has, it's only been in the last maybe 10, 15 years that I've been able to, to craft or pull together a quote um, career from this, mm-hmm. you know, it's not someplace you go, you know, you can, certainly I could have gone in gerontology, but I would like for him to, if he doesn't find what it is that really causes him to sing and feel great, maybe he can create it. And yeah. maybe it can be, people had hobbies at one time, mm-hmm. you know, if you, you could be a teacher, but you could have, be a mechanic too. So to just stay true to who he is and all of these things I know sound cliche, but they're really like, who are you mm-hmm. beyond what the world perceives you to be or who mm-hmm. you think you, who are you? Mm-hmm. Who are you? So I would like for him to, to contemplate and be self-reflective. And I think we hear this, the, the story of all of the, the our, leg, our um, history about being enslaved people and the difficulty, but there was still joy. You know, you know, people, the quote, slave masters were perplexed why we were having so much fun, right. you know, right. it was still joy despite the circumstances. And so how do we tap into that joy and that joy of life? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I would, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so, lovely. But I want to be, I, and I think for me, it's important. I mean, I can say a lot of things, but I want to be a living example mm. of all of what, I want him to be, mm. I, you know, if I'm, if, if I'm asking him to take a risk and have courage, I need to take a risk and have courage. Mm-hmm. So it's so easy to say things and not live it, but I want to be a living example um, because my son doesn't take too much to me saying much of anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, At least it looks like that and that, right, you know, right, right. time. But, you know, just like um, you talked about that, that time between your having that joy of connecting with the elders, there was something that was part of a thing that you had to work through and became, you know, and later it became the thing that you could find the joy as well as a career in. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, it seems to be, the way it is, you know, on this planet. And that's why we have that instruction, you know, guide a child early and yes. they will not, and they will come not to that. Straight, right. So they will, right. there's, there, it gives you that time in there to work through some evolution and then get to get down to that work that right. you that we come to this planet to do. 
Right, right. So this has been a very, very lovely conversation. I really, really appreciate you taking the time out to have it. And it's, it's so many gems in there that I think that, that I'm going to reflect on and, I'm de- and I feel that our listeners will be able to reflect on and bring that value to their families as well. And that's always our goal. Well, I thank you so much, Njamele. You are very warm and you made this experience easy. And I've probably said, shared some things that I've never shared before because I felt very comfortable. So oh. your, your open-heartedness and your warmth is just, you exude that. And so you, you made it easy. So thank you for having this platform to share my experience. I appreciate it. Thank you. And I do have two last questions. Um, <laughs> it's not over yet okay uh, I have and, and these are these are kind of my classics you know uh, just like the, the question at the top which is you know your favorite drink mm-hmm. um, what advice would you give to your 80 year old self I would tell my 80 year old self to stay engaged It may look a way that people may not want to hear you, but don't be deterred by the lack of perceived interest because Mm -hmm. what um, the research is saying is that older people are starting to feel diminished because that's how they're being treated. Mm -hmm. So just to, to know other than what society says that it's okay. It's okay. Mm -hmm. You know, and stay engaged and stay in touch with those people that want to be vital and who want to stay relevant and involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it, to be quite honest. Yeah. 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 I, I, okay. To get to a place, you know, where you, where you, you know, you're a lifelong learner. So you get to a place where you really don't give a rip. Exactly. That lifelong learning part is just, is, is just really, really big for me. In -hmm. fact, that's what, that's the uh, Adinkra symbol that I use. And I can't even tell you the, the actual name of it in, in the Akan language or in the Ashanti language, but it, but the symbol means lifelong learning. That's the one I use for for my yeah. editing writing business. Wow. So the next question is if you had all power such that anything that you say will happen, what would you decree to improve family life for African-Americans? Well, I would break down the false barriers of generations Mm. Because when people see that I am of a certain age, there's this perception that they can't relate if they're a teenager. So Mm. I don't get the chance. Mm. So how do you begin to take away that superficial number called age and just relate to people regardless of their ages, that ageism? I would take away that. Wow. And so, so that you don't, you don't have any 
preconceived notions about when you see a teenage, oh, well, you know, who has their pants hanging down or whatever, that you take away all of that, that, that preconception mm -hmm. of who they might be and just relate. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. That, yeah. that is great stuff. Well, thank you again so, so much for coming. And I really enjoyed it and really learned a lot today. Okay. Thank you. Again. All right. So that is it for this edition of Blood and Spirit. Y'all have a good day.